Hey there, and welcome to episode 21 of the Unknown Friends podcast, season three. I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and I'm delighted that you've joined me again this week for part three of our discussion of Aeschylus's Oristia trilogy. We are actually getting really close to the end of this season of the podcast, um, our season of trilogies. The Oristia was our seventh trilogy this year, and we only have one more to go. Um, and I am crazy excited about the last trilogy we'll be discussing. I have literally been looking forward to it all year, um, but I'm not going to tell you what it's going to be, not just yet. I will tell you at the end of today's episode, so be sure to stay tuned for that announcement. Today, of course, we are finishing the Oristia by taking a look at the trilogy's third and final play titled The Eumenides. Now, Eumenides in Greek literally means the kindly ones or uh, the good-minded or good-spirited ones. This should be a rather surprising title for this play, given the two plays that preceded it, right? I mean, so far, this trilogy has been about murder and vengeance, um, trickery, betrayal, violence, the cycle of bloodshed that haunts the house of Atreus. Really, no one has been a kindly person so far. Maybe Orestes and his sister Electra could be described as good-spirited, since they are religiously devout and, you know, they are seekers of justice. But, of course, Orestes murdered his mother, albeit in obedience to a command of the god Apollo. Um, so all things considered, given this trilogy's track record so far, Eumenides is an unexpected title for the final play. But as we'll see, while the first two plays are indeed tragic dramas, the third is arguably not a tragedy, at least in this sense. Unlike the first two, the last play has a very happy ending. So maybe the title does fit the play in the end. We shall see. At the end of The Libation Bearers, of course, the second play, we left our hero in a very unhappy place. Orestes had returned home from exile and, at the bidding of Apollo, was on a mission to avenge his father Agamemnon's death. And he very efficiently carried out that mission by killing both his mother Clytemnestra and her accomplice Aegisthus. But although he did this in obedience to Apollo, his act brought on him the wrath of the Furies, the goddesses of vengeance. Their role as deities is to avenge the murder of kin. And so as soon as Orestes had murdered his mother, they became his enemies, and they determined to hunt him down and punish him mercilessly. So the libation bearers concluded with Orestes running away from his home back into exile, desperately trying to escape the furies who were hunting him. He fled to Delphi, the seat of Apollo, hoping for protection there from the furies. 
So the Eumenides opens in Delphi very shortly after the events of the previous play. Orestes is a suppliant seeking refuge, and the Furies have caught up with him at Delphi, but Apollo has used his power to put the Furies into a deep sleep for the time being, which gives Orestes a moment to breathe. So Apollo gives Orestes some advice. He tells Orestes to go to Athens, where the goddess Athena presides, and to seek justice from her. She is the goddess of reason and civilization, and she will do whatever is right for Orestes, whether he deserves punishment for killing his mother or mercy since he acted only in obedience to a divine command. So Orestes says he will do whatever Apollo advises, and he heads out from Delphi while the Furies are still sleeping, and he sets his course toward Athens. Meanwhile, after he leaves, the Furies awaken. The ghost of Clytemnestra actually comes to them to urge them on in their hunt for vengeance for her murder. And when the Furies wake up, Apollo briefly confronts them. Um, and there's an interesting clash between these deities, um, which is intriguing in that it gets at the very root of the problem of this whole religious system. There's inconsistency within the structure that is supposed to give meaning and order to the world. Chaos is bound to ensue when there's a whole pantheon of gods who each have different priorities, different roles, different uh, favorites among the humans, and different axes to grind. Um, so they argue and they compete with each other, and it's no wonder that justice is extraordinarily difficult to find in such a world. This is the chaotic system that someone like Orestes finds himself trapped in. So in this scene, Apollo tells the Furies that they are basically disgusting and unjust and outdated. And the Furies, in turn, accuse Apollo of being an upstart young god who had no business commanding Orestes to kill his mother. So we see a rivalry and an enmity between these deities. And the scene ends with the Furies angrily leaving to keep tracking Orestes, while Apollo is still determined to try to protect him and hopes that Athena will rule in Orestes' favor. So then the scene shifts, and we follow Orestes to Athens, where he throws himself on Athena's mercy. But the Furies are hard on his heels, and they arrive and also make a kind of appeal to Athena, demanding that she judge Orestes as a murderer and punish him. And Athena is very wise. Um, she is the goddess of wisdom, after all, and she deals remarkably well with the situation. She's respectful and gracious and she insists that there are two sides to this story, and she must hear both if justice is to be served. And moreover, she decides not to judge the case alone. Instead, she will appoint a jury of Athenian men to hear the Furies' accusations and Orestes' defense, and they will vote 
to decide Orestes' fate. So in other words, she arranges a trial by jury. So this play proceeds to become what we could rightly call a courtroom drama, the first ever. Athena is the judge, Athenians make up the jury, the Furies are the prosecutors, Orestes is the defendant, and Apollo is his defense attorney. So we hear from both sides. There is some back and forth between Apollo and the Furies, which is, again, interesting. Um, Many of their arguments do not sound compelling or even logical to modern ears, but in that ancient time and place, they would have been more relevant and more persuasive. The Furies argue that the close kinship between a mother and son make matricide a particularly horrendous crime, while Apollo, on the other hand, um, claims that a wife's murder of her husband is a worse crime, uh, which he says justifies Orestes for punishing his mother with death. Ultimately, after each side makes its case, the jurors anonymously vote, and the vote comes out tied. So, Athena, the judge, is the tiebreaker, and she votes in Orestes' favor. So he's acquitted, and he can go back to his home in Argos and claim the house and um, authority of his fathers. Um, He's no longer in exile, but a free man now. So Orestes gets his happy ending, and he leaves. But that's not quite the end of the play, um, because the Furies are... Uh, furious, as their name implies. They are absolutely outraged that Orestes got off scot-free because uh, they feel disgraced and powerless with this outcome. Or maybe not powerless, but they feel that their, their power or their authority has been insulted by these younger deities, Apollo and Athena, and their uh, little jury of humans. So the Furies are offended and angry, and they threaten to retaliate against the city of Athens in vengeance on Athena, who was the deciding vote in Orestes' favor. The Furies say that they will poison the earth and make Athens a barren, desolate place. And here again, Athena shows her wisdom. Um, She's really an impressive diplomat. Instead of escalating the conflict. She remains calm, and she is courteous to the Furies, even in their wrath as they threaten her city. She assures them that they have not been dishonored, uh, that the trial was conducted fairly, and that the outcome must have been the will of Zeus, the king of the gods. Um, In this conversation, Athena does also mention the fact that she herself is Zeus's daughter and has Uh, connections and resources. She could access Zeus's thunderbolts if she needed to, but she makes the statement that, of course, no such weapons or threats are needed here. She, um, She respectfully acknowledges the Furies' status as ancient deities, and, you know, she kind of treats them as rational beings even when they're not being particularly rational. Um, or at least not very self-restrained. They are threatening all this darkness and violence, and instead of offering violence in return, 
Athena ultimately offers the Furies quite a gracious offer. She says, um, rather than cursing Athens, they could become the city's patrons if they wanted to. They could use their ancient power for good, to bless Athens and bring it prosperity. Um, And in return, the city would honor the Furies forever. Athenians would praise them and offer them sacrifices. And finally, the Furies start to listen. Athena's really smart, right? She knows exactly what the Furies need to hear. Their essential complaint is that they've been dishonored and cast aside. And so Athena offers to give them a place and to actually share her home and people with them, which is quite generous. And it works. The Furies kind of cool down and finally really listen to her offer. And in the end, they decide that they like the sound of it. So when they accept and choose to become benevolent patron goddesses of Athens, they are transformed from being the Furies into being the Eumenides, the kindly ones, the good-spirited ones. No longer deities of vengeance, instead they've become deities of Athens, which as a city and community, was kind of a beacon of justice in the ancient Greek world. But with Orestes' trial and this transformation of the Furies into the Eumenides, justice itself has been um, transformed in this story. It's no longer a fierce, bloody, um, sort of barbaric thing. It's been civilized and given more structure. Now, people no longer have to take justice into their own hands the way they always used to. Now, a jury will decide the innocence or guilt of a person and their proper punishment, if any. This is a huge step forward in civilization. And that's why this last play really is not a tragedy, strictly speaking. It does have many of the characteristics of ancient tragic drama in that it portrays gods and heroic men as its characters, and it deals with matters of a very serious nature. But the storyline goes up instead of down. There's a happy ending. So that is the story of the Oresteia. Now, just to be clear, Aeschylus um, did not personally invent the jury trial. It was already an institution in Greece at this point in history. But Aeschylus portrayed a mythical version of the jury trial's origin. This is his imagining of how the Greek gods might have instituted the trial by jury, uh, which was already a part of Greek civilization in Aeschylus's lifetime. So even though he didn't invent this institution, he does elevate it, and he reminds his Greek audience of its importance. Without a structure for justice, you just have anarchy. And so it's vital to have this arrangement where an accused person can be heard and judged by a hopefully unbiased group of his fellow citizens. And this kind of trial was an Athenian innovation originally. So a play like the Eumenides would have been particularly meaningful 
and moving to Aeschylus's Athenian audience. It would have been performed originally on the side of the Acropolis, basically just around the corner from the Areopagus, Mars Hill, which was actually the place where trials often took place in Athens. Now, of course, in this play, Aeschylus shows that it's not just the structure or system that allows for better justice. He develops a deeper, more nuanced understanding of what justice even is. First of all, he allows for mercy or atonement. One thing that I haven't actually mentioned yet about this play is that Orestes um, receives a kind of atonement for the killing of his mother from the god Apollo. Um, Because, of course, it was a dreadful deed, because even if it was in some sense a just punishment on Clytemnestra, it was still murder. So when Orestes returns to Delphi for protection from Apollo, he also goes for cleansing. He has shed blood, and Apollo, the one who sent him on that mission, has to clear him from that blood guilt. Now, of course, the Furies do not have a nuanced view of justice and do not allow for any kind of atonement or forgiveness, and so they don't acknowledge this as a legitimate cleansing. But Aeschylus does. He portrays Orestes as a free and guiltless man after Apollo purifies him and Athena acquits him. Secondly, Aeschylus also contemplates motive and context in a more balanced way than an older worldview might have done. The Furies, who represent a more ancient, uh, more barbaric way of thinking, really aren't interested in hearing Orestes' defense. They don't care that Apollo commanded him to kill his mother. They just care that the killing happened, and it is their priority to avenge it. Athena makes the comment at one point to the Furies that they are seeking the form of justice, not its deed. They're so concerned with um, legalistically achieving their little scheme of so-called justice that they've lost touch with what is actually just. And Aeschylus counters this legalistic way of thinking by portraying Orestes as having honorable motives and making that a key factor in his acquittal. And lastly, throughout all this, Aeschylus is making a case for reason and diplomacy. Athena is the model for this. Justice very easily falls by the wayside when people in a conflict start to attack one another, um, insult one another, or just resort to violence in any way. Um, Of course, in some contexts, violence is necessary, but whenever possible, diplomacy is better. And a diplomatic conflict, uh, one guided by wisdom and deliberation and graciousness, is more likely to achieve justice than a violent conflict fueled by anger or envy is. So, those are some of our takeaways from the Oristia, some of the ways in which Aeschylus is trying to develop our concept of true justice. 
One last comment on a slightly different note. Another interesting thing that I think the Oristaya invites us to reflect on is the kind of similarity between the stage and the courtroom. This is the first time that we know of in Western literature that a trial was ever depicted in a play, and it gives us an opportunity to consider the ways in which a drama and a trial maybe mirror one another. Both uh, rehearse or narrate a pre-existing story, and both have a kind of stage and a kind of audience. There's a lot of ceremony and ritual involved in both institutions. People play various assigned roles and give their testimonies, perhaps, or say their lines, as the case may be. And both, in different ways, are really central to Western civilization. A story is told, whether true or false, and those listening and watching must pass judgment. And this is really an exercise that's fundamental to the human experience. Hearing a story that is outside of ourselves, that is a part of someone else's life, and having to think about it and discern the good or bad, the true or false in it. That's really important to be able to do. And I think being a thoughtful audience member for a theater performance actually gives us practice evaluating other people's stories, uh, which is a skill that will be vital throughout our lives. So those are a few of my thoughts after reading the Oristia trilogy, and for what they're worth, I hope you have found them helpful or interesting in some way. I would love to hear your thoughts on these plays as well, if you have ever read them or ever seen them performed. If you want to have a one-on-one conversation, you are welcome to email me at kittywham at gmail.com or message me on Facebook or Instagram or Patreon. I would love to hear from you. Thanks, as always, for listening to these episodes on Aeschylus's Oristia, and I really hope you come back for our last trilogy of the season next time, because as I said, I am super pumped for this one. Um, If you haven't already guessed, knowing the authors I love most, the eighth and final trilogy we will be discussing this year is C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy sometimes called the Cosmic Trilogy or the Ransom Trilogy. The three books in the series are titled Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. These are truly some of my favorite books ever. I read them over and over throughout my teens, and it is really exciting to read them once again and get to discuss them with you guys. So I hope you enjoy those coming episodes as much as I plan to. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and if you're ever interested in learning more about me and the plays that I write, you can just visit my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next time with C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Space Trilogy